I mean, it's my pleasure to introduce our three esteemed speakers in, in this session. I will do the briefest possible introductions because it's quite a tight timetable and we're interested in, in content. As somebody on the fringes of history of photography, I find the history of photography conferences of all kinds immensely informative, partly because there's so much stuff out there waiting to be revealed. If you lecture on Renaissance works of art or research Renaissance works of art, you have to contrive new things to say. In the history of photography, there is simply so much new material that, uh, that there are always, always revelations. Um, our first speaker is, um, is Luke Gartland from St Andrews. St Andrews, which is what, the second cradle of the daguerreotype with, um, with David Brewster and, uh, and John and Robert Adamson. Um, it was my old, my old stumping ground, but I didn't over, overlap with Luke. Anyway, it's a pleasure to think that history of photography is alive, well, and going on in St Andrews. So, Luke, w welcome. And I should say what the title of his paper is. It's, well, it's up there. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Um, and thank you for the invitation. Um, firstly, I have to apologise about the, the the images have been put on the rack, um, but apparently this is something which has to do with the um, projector rather than computer and can't be changed. So we're just going to have to um, squint a little with your eyes. Um, so um, this is a new topic for any of you who know my work. I, I've written a lot about Japan, um, so I've. I've wanted to do something different this year um, and, and think about something different. Um, so, um, and what's sort of animating this title, as you see as I go through it, are, are two albums. One which is the official published album, which is in front of you, and an earlier album, which it turns out, which is in the National Library of Scotland, is a kind of private... Um, um, compendium. Uh, uh, many, almost all the same photographs appear in same albums, but the early album is a kind of exchange between um, these two scholars in particular. And what I want to emphasise about this is why we might look at finished products as a sort of carefully moduled things. The earlier album points out how much doubt there was around the evidence of photography, around what its position was, what its place was, but in terms of fields. Um, and what I kind of want to more broadly, I suppose, move towards is to see doubt or indeterminacy as something of a kind of defining feature of photography um, and its history. So William Bradford's The Arctic Regions has often been cited as an exemplar of the Victorian era photographic book, published in 1873 by the renowned firm of Sampson, Lowe, Marston, Lowe and Searle, the imposing volume, with its embossed leather cover of gilt polar bears and icebergs framed by neo-Gothic motifs, declares the significance of its subjects by its conspicuous size and opulence. With its 141 album and photographs, pasted into a narrative account of a voyage to Labrador and Greenland, the publication has been adjudged, and I quote, a milestone in the history of illustrated travel books and Arctic photography, unquote. The publication, released in an edition of 300, marked a new phase in private efforts to profit from the transatlantic interest in Arctic themes. Yet the familiar scientific and ge or geopolitical imperatives that under underpinned 
most polar expeditions of the period were purportedly secondary to its pictorial aims. As Bradford stated in his introduction, the album was the result of an expedition to the Arctic regions made solely for the purposes of art in the summer of 1869. Given this aesthetic impetus to the expedition, the volume's photographs have primarily been examined as source materials for William Bradford's painterly renditions of an Arctic sublime. By his own account, Bradford acknowledged the presence of the professional photographers John L. Dunmore and George Creechison of the well-known Boston studio of James Wallace Black as fellow travellers on the summer expedition aboard the steamer The Panther. This chartered vessel, specially reinforced against the ICCs, was fitted with a purpose-built darkroom for the photographers' operations. Yet despite their production of three to four hundred negatives during the voyage, and the painter's acknowledgement of their activities, Dunmore and Crutchison have been interpreted as pictorial tradesmen, under the artist's instruction. However much Bradford credited photographers and photography with the visual materials of his practice, and he did so with a frankness rare for the 19th century, art historians have either merely acknowledged the visual borrowings or sought to deny their implications. Although it's now generally acknowledged that these photographs were integral to the painter's contemporary reputation for truth to the, his subject, the portfolio served as much more than visual fodder. As an imposing publication available in several international collections, the Arctic regions has garnered considerable attention, yet its combined visual textual narrative of an artistic voyage effectively hides its debts to the learned circles of Victorian Britain in preference for a first-hand eyewitness account of the Arctic. The Arctic regions represents the culmination of more than a decade of travel, Arctic travels by the New England maritime painter. From his first summer visit to the Labrador coast in 1861, Bradford undertook at least seven expeditions to the region, often accompanied by a photographer and culminating in the ambitious voyage north along the west coast of Greenland in 1869. Yet the systematic first-person narrative and captioned illustrations interspersed throughout with full-page plates belies the shifting contexts, applications and private debates that had accrued to these photographs in the intervening years between the voyages and the ultimate photographic publication. In fact, Bradford's reputation among his contemporaries for truthfulness relied less on any claim to photographic objectivity in his work than to his deployment of photographs to negotiate meaning across various fields of knowledge. This was apparent in his numerous lectures, illustrated with stereopticon slides, and presented to members of the Royal Institution and the Royal Geographical Society in London. So this paper aims to contrast selected pages from uh, the Arctic regions with an unpublished photographic album in the National Library of Scotland, which is on my side. So whereas the former presents a carefully choreographed synthesis of text and image, and authoritative and unified narrative of the artist's expedition, 
The latter album is characteristic of the Victorian era function of photographs as private objects of discursive exchange. As the gilt embossed cover indicates, the album was first compiled by the Scottish polymath, John Francis Campbell of Isla, perhaps best remembered for his compilation of Gaelic folk tales of the Outer Hebrides. He's a kind of Grimm Brothers for Scotland. <laughs> Interspersed within the albums, the pages of this album, are personal letters of introduction, detailed notes and extensive marginalia, which emphasise the private album's function as transitional, open-ended and always subject to amendment. The album does not so much present a, a finished product of photographs and text, as document the process of its own production. A letter pasted in the album accounts for the transatlantic networks which brought the American artist before the Scottish aristocrat. Dated April 20th, 1871 from New York, an address to John Francis Campbell, in, then living in Kensington, West London, Walter Campbell asked his brother to extend every assistance to, quote, my friend, Mr. William Bradford. On the envelope itself, John Francis scribbled, May 13, 1871, Mr. Bradford came, asked him to dine and took him to the Duke of Argyle, Sir R. Murchison, Professor Ramsey, Professor Tyndall. These connections proved invaluable to the American artist's success in Britain, providing him with an introduction into the highest echelons of Victorian society. The Duke of Argyle became a prominent patron of Bradford and introduced him to his mother-in-law, Queen Victoria. The other three listed names emphasise Campbell's position amid the erudite geological and geographical circles of Victorian society. The Scottish geologist, Sir Roderick Murchison, for example, was then president of the Royal Geographical Society and founded a chair of geology at Edinburgh University. As thanks for these introductions, Bradford sent a group of 17 photographs to Campbell subsequently adding handwritten inscriptions to each of the depicted scenes in his own hand. To this, Campbell added his own ex extensive notes, both on separate sheets and directly on the mounts of each photograph. The album's significance rests not only in its inclusion of photographs otherwise absent from the publication The Arctic Regions, but also for the textual correspondence inscribed in the margins of the album. In these notations, the photographs value as evidence, whether geological, geographical, ethnographic, or indeed aesthetic, is subject to regular and seemingly open-ended debate. Such private conversations before these photographs, rarely documented but crucial to the artist's position in Victorian scientific circles, were part of an ongoing process of knowledge production which eventually shaped the publication of the Arctic regions. In this respect, Campbell's position as interpreter and interlocutor is crucial. Educated at Eton and Edinburgh University, Campbell was a figure of extraordinarily diverse interests and accomplishments, but two fields came to the fore in his encounter with Bradford, photography and Arctic geology. Although all but overlooked by visual historians, Campbell's interest in photography was profound and surprisingly early. David Octavius Hill and Robert, Robert um, Adamson's evocative portrait of a contemplative Scot in his early 20s 
One of at least three portraits of him made by the famous pair suggests his involvement in the earliest photographic circles of Scotland. About this time, Campbell became interested in optics and photography while a student at Edinburgh University and remained throughout his life engaged in their study. He was a founding member of the Photographic Society, predecessor of the Royal Photographic Society of Great Britain, and wrote several technical articles for the, for the Society's journals in the 1850s and 1860s. In 1851, Campbell met Sir David Brewster, famous as the inventor of the kaleidoscope and one of the foremost scientists of optics. The two men, however, shared more than a long-term speciality in optics and photography. They also held a strong interest in Arctic matters. Brewster, a scientific popularizer, wrote more than a dozen articles and reviews on popular exploration, on, on Arctic exploration during his career. In contrast, Campbell's experience was first-hand. From the late 1840s, he made the first of 11 trips to northern Scandinavia, revealing himself to be a competent amateur watercolorist in his ethnographic studies of the Sami people. Brewster's and Campbell's common interest in optics and photography is certainly not tangential to their Arctic fascination. For the Victorians, the Arctic was an environment par excellence of visual effects, of reflections and refractions of water, ice and air, of strange atmospheric effects and uncertainties of, per of perception. Indeed, the nexus of associations between optical devices and effects and the perception of the polar environment informed the very language of Arctic regions. As Bradford wrote in the Arctic view from his ship's deck, and I quote, the scene is wild, strange, and magnificent. None of the bergs were very large, but no two were alike. And as the panther moved rapidly along between and amongst them, the scene could be compared to nothing but the quick changing views of a kaleidoscope. And again, as some lofty berg passed between us and the sun, its crest would be bordered by an orange-coloured halo, in which sometimes prismatic shades appeared. That the Victorians' fascination with Arctic exploration parallels the rise of modern optics in the photographic era is hardly accidental. From this perspective, Brewster's reviews and Campbell's travels to the Arctic were part, of a broader, were part of the broader studies of optics. And in turn, the language of Victorian optics, from childhood toys to prismatic shades, furnished the popular metaphors of, of polar exploration. For our current purposes, Campbell's travels to, in northern Scandinavia inspired a lifelong fascination with the geology of the Arctic Circle, in glaciers, icebergs, fjords and valleys which eventually culminated in his two-volume opus, Frost and Fire, Natural Engines, Toolmarks and Chips, published in 1865. Six years later with William Bradford, the specialist geological knowledge language of his tract underpinned his encounter with the photographs of Greenland. Even the title of the album, for those who noticed earlier, referred to its recipient's geological publication. Bradford and Campbell's examination of the photographs was not one in which the former's first-hand experience of the localities necessarily precluded the latter's intervention. 
For Bradford, the photographs served not merely as gifts of exchange or as proclamations of his own artistic veracity, but as sites of debate about the interpretation of photographs. And in Campbell, Bradford encountered a scholar with three decades' experience in photography and optics, and more than two decades in Arctic geology and ethnography. Photographs became the site for their contested claims and counterclaims as artist and as geologist. Consider firstly a typical example of the front of a glacier at Cape Desolation in Greenland. Whereas the Arctic regions presents a full page plate, carefully framed with a printed title, Campbell's album provides a seemingly more random arrangement of photograph and written notations. On the right, Bradford's title was inscribed in neat cursive hand, section of the Simulet um, Glacier. However, Campbell's text dominates the margins with its specialist geological language of glaciated stone and polishing engines. Divorced from the expedition's stated objective for the purposes of art, the photograph enables the geologist's investigation into the action of glaciers and the formation of icebergs. Whereas the Victorians considered that a photograph supposedly fixed a moment in time, Campbell reinscribes the image from points one to four into a narrative of geological processes and geological time. Far from the rhetoric of an unchanging environment, such accounts promoted the notion of the polar environment as dynamic and volatile. In other examples, Campbell's desire to adopt the photograph as geological evidence almost threatens to overwhelm the image itself. In the case of Castle Iceberg, as they christened it, the, geolo the geologist's lengthy speculative calculations on the mass of the iceberg only result in a concluding polite acknowledgement of the artist's limited data. And I quote, but all this is guesswork because depths and distances are not accurately given by my friend and his picture. It only suffices to show that the mass is great. <laughs> I.e. I have no idea what to do with this. Yet in other um, instances, other cases, the marginal notations reveal the artist's counter-critique of the geologist's ability to interpret the photograph scene. At the furthest point north, depicted in the steamer panther in the hummock and rafted ice in Melville Bay, um, so where are we? Maybe it's, yes, here we are. Campbell added a note in the left corner of the mount, and I quote, ice at work in the sea, glaciated rock at the sea margin affected by floating ice. In dialogue with Bradford, however, this assessment of the thin dark line at the juncture between ice and sea came under scrutiny. Scribbled beneath his initial observation, Campbell added, this is, a, this is a mistake of mine, according to Bradford, the dark line near the boat is green ice, not rock. In such instances, the photograph's utility as evidence falters, its purported visual fidelity failing to banish the possibility of viewers' disagreement. In Campbell's, according to Bradford, the geologist begrudgingly defers to the, art, to the eyewitness artist as the arbiter of judgment. Of course, Bradford's response to Campbell's interpretation of the dark line 
highlighted perhaps the most striking limitation of photography at the time, its inability to render naturalistic colours without their manual addition to the print itself. And as indicated by the reference to the kaleidoscope or the orange-coloured halo, Arctic regions repeatedly emphasised the environment's colours. Reminding the reader of the limitations of the monochrome pasted in photographs illustrated um, the very same account. As if to further emphasise this distinction, Bradford's own oil paintings are characterised by particular regard for icebergs' hues of greens and blues. Photographs, therefore, were not so much source material for his painterly concerns as a counterpoint to it. Their publication and exhibition only served to emphasise the specific visual qualities of his paintings, rather than imply their reliance on photographs. Again and again, the Arctic regions removed such textual marginalia, such expressed doubts on the readings of the photographs, and returns the illustrations to the untroubled interpretive waters of the full-page plate and caption dramatisation of the voyage. Colour, however, was not the only source of possible confusion. On the right margin of the cliffs on the opposite side of the harbour at Godhaven, Campbell once again jotted down his geological observations on the photograph, with an arrow pointing directly to the relevant object. This is in the bottom right corner from your viewpoint. And he wrote, stricted rock with grooves visible. That photographed objects could all too readily be misidentified in the search for evidence finds its most striking parallel in the subsequent notation. Okay. Okay, so you can see at the bottom there, stricted rock with grooves visible. With apparent candour, Campbell added above the original comment, Stricted rock, this is an error of mine, for the flat rock was a boat, a flat boat, according to Bradford. <laughs> Whether rock or boat, my concern here rests in the uncertainty of the object. As with the previous example, Campbell once again defers to the first-hand knowledge of his artist friend. But the ease of such false recognition or misrecognition of an upturned boat in unwilling camouflage as geological evidence only serves to underscore the visual uncertainties of the Victorian portfolios of Arctic photography. So to conclude. So Campbell's album of photographs highlights the exchanges of knowledge which such private gifts enabled and promoted in the Victorian period. However impressive the Arctic region, such deluxe photographic publications were only the public manifestation of a broader process of album gift giving around which the contested work of knowledge production within private networks often took place. The initial compilation with its copious notes, correspondence and marginalia points to the Victorian era um, phenomenon of the private archiving of polar photographs. And yet, in the notations added to these photographs, the Victorian's faith in the fidelity of the medium, its utility as self-evident visual information, threatened to give way to the optical uncertainties which were both understood to constitute and to unsettle 
Victorian understandings of the Arctic. Thank you.